to chapter 3, verses 21 and following. We aren't finished with chapter 2, but uh, we need some good news, right? I mean, we've been listening to bad news for about two months now, so we're going we're gonna to read about some good news. The first part of Paul's letter, verse 18, chapter 1 and following through the 20th verse of chapter 3 is Paul's, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, it's Paul's indictment, and he includes himself in this indictment, his indictment of the whole of the human race, that all have sinned, as we read in this particular passage, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Uh, Sin is universal and it's pervasive, it's wide and it's deep. It goes everywhere and it goes to the depths of who we are. But with these verses, verse 21 of chapter 3 and following, we, we really begin to get the, a picture of the good news. And I will just ask you that you pray while, while you're hearing this read and while you're listening to me try to explain it because this paragraph is as important as any paragraph in the whole of the Bible for you and for me. And, and I just so desperately want for God the Holy Spirit to press this into our souls. So listen to this as it's being read. And do just remember that this is Reformation Sunday. And we're celebrating, as, as Zach mentioned, we're sort of celebrating the recovery, the dusting off, the polishing up, and the setting before the church, the beauty of the gospel of grace. And that's the thing that differentiates Christianity from every other religion of the world. All of the other religions of the world say, in effect, this is what you have to do to get to God. This is what you have to do to get there. This is what you have to do to achieve this. This is what you have to do to earn this. This is the only faith, the only religion in the whole world that says, God came into the world to do for you what you're powerless and helpless to do for yourself. That's what differentiates Christianity from everything else. Everything says, this is what you must do. Christianity says, this is what God did for you. So as we read this, let's let's really ask God to help us uh, to see this clearly and understand it. Romans 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, again, simply ask you, we simply ask you for your help. Please come and and rip open, rip open the fortress of our hearts and pour into our hearts the wonder of what you've done for us in Jesus. And Lord, I pray for your people this morning 
that they might leave here at peace, that their consciences might be at rest because of what we see here together. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, just really quickly, let's remember what the gospel tells us, uh, what the good news tells us. The gospel tells us the good news is the announcement that the king has come. Uh, the long-awaited promised king, the long-awaited promised son of David, he's come. And, he, and this is such an important big word. When he comes, he comes to restore peace. I mean, he comes to his realm and he comes to what is his to restore peace to his realm, to restore shalom to his realm. Now, who doesn't want peace? I mean, who doesn't want peace? Everybody wants peace. And, and I'll, I'll just suggest to you that while you, you know, you read the newspapers and you listen to news reports and you think about the world and everything else, it'd be nice to have peace out there, okay? It'd be great to have peace out there, but, but more than peace out there, I want to have peace in here. Because, I mean, if I have peace in here, if I have peace in my mind and in my heart and in my soul, I mean a true and lasting and abiding peace, a deep peace. It doesn't matter what's going on out there. It doesn't matter. I mean, it does, but it can't touch me, you know. And actually, the thing that provoked and precipitated the Reformation was one, and not Martin Luther wasn't the first guy to wake up and say, I don't have peace and I need it. I mean, he was preceded by all kinds of folks who struggled with the same thing. Luther was referred to, he was called a Hussite. He was called a Hussite because he believed the same things that John Huss, who was burned at the stake in Prague and Czechoslovakia, wasn't Czechoslovakia at the time, but in Prague, burned at the stake he, 130 years before Luther, Huss believed the same things, and Luther embraced these things and elaborated and enlarged upon them. You know, he was called a Hussite, so he wasn't the first one. But the Reformation, in some respects, is simply the struggle of one man to find peace inside him, in his heart, in his soul, peace between himself and God. And that's the, you know, that's the fundamental question for you and me, the, the central and core question for you and me. If there's not, if there's peace out there, but there isn't peace in here, the peace, who cares? Who cares? The question is, how can there be peace between God and me? How can I know it? How can I know that the hostility has been removed? How can I know that the enmity has been removed? How can I know that God is not angry? That was Luther's trouble. He'd see a, a representation of Jesus. He'd, he'd hear about Jesus. He'd read in the scriptures. And all he could see was Jesus with a sword. That's all he could see. And it wasn't the sword of Damocles. You know, it wasn't the mythical sword from Greek mythology. It was the sword of judgment. He saw Christ as a judge. And he was right to see Christ as a judge, as we'll see. But his big question was, how can there be peace between, between God and me, between Jesus and me? Now, look, I, not, I guess maybe there's a chance that we're, all of us in this room are not persuaded of this. But I'm, I'm guessing if we stop and we think and we just reflect a little bit, 
we all know that we do wrong stuff. At the very least, we know we do wrong stuff. And Luther knew he did wrong stuff. Uh, Luther was, you know, he was accused by his brothers in the in the monastery, he was accused of being a gold brick. He was accused of being lazy because he'd spend so much time in the confessional. This is true. I mean, you can read Roland Bainton's biography of Luther. He'd spend so much time with his father confessor, with his priest, that his, his buddies in the monastery thought he was a gold brick. They thought he was lazy. But he was so deeply, all he could see was everything that he did that was wrong. And he knew that every individual thing that he did that was wrong was finally a violation, not of some some elder brother, not of some civil law, but it was a violation ultimately against God. Because he understood there is somebody at home in the universe. There is somebody who inhabits this universe. It's not empty. But it's filled with the existence of God who is righteous and who is just. That's what we've seen. In in Romans so far, God is righteous, which is to say that everything that he does is right. So when there is a wrong that is committed, we got issues. We got issues. Luther understood there are rebels in the universe, and we be the rebels. We be the rebels. And so, you know, Luther would go to his confessor and he'd confess everything that he knew to confess. He would, you know, he'd run through everything that he'd done the previous day, the previous week, anything he was uncertain of. And the father, the the father confessor would pronounce absolution. And Luther says that he would leave the confessional and he would know peace for 30 seconds. Because then he would remember something that he hadn't confessed and for which he did not receive absolution. And so he knew he was toast. He knew Christ the judge, the righteous one. And he lived in terror and fear until he discovered the things that we're looking at today. See, that's the issue. The issue is ultimately, how can there be real peace between God and me, how can there be peace? How can there be reconciliation? How can there be fellowship? As long as the holy and righteous God, who is the judge and who is also omniscient, right? Omniscient, you know what? Omni meaning all and everything and, and scientia, the Latin word from which we get our word science, you know, he knows everything. And the interesting thing is that he doesn't have to investigate and explore. He doesn't have to run around doing experiments and stuff like that. He knows me, top to bottom, side to side, in the depths and core of my being. And he knows that I'm unrighteous. How can there be peace? between a holy God and an unholy man like me. There's a great passage in Exodus 34. I encourage you to read it uh, sometime. It's, a, it's, a, it's such a powerful passage. But it's Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, and Moses has come down from the mountain, and he's found the people committing harlotry. That's what it is. They're committing idolatry. They're worshiping the calf. He's gotten the law. You remember, God brings the people to the mountain. He marries them. He gives them his law, which is a certificate of marriage, right? Moses brings the certificate of marriage down from the mountain. 
And what does he find? He finds the nation committing spiritual adultery with other gods. That's the context for Exodus 34, 7 and 8. And in the midst of all of that, Moses intercedes. He pleads with God for the people. And, and after God has relented, Moses says, please let me see your glory. I want to see your glory. And so what does God do? He reveals his name to Moses. And what is his name? His name, the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And wouldn't you love for the sentence to end there? But it doesn't. The next phrase causes the whole world, everything to stand still, But who will by no means clear the guilty? I mean, you you know, you listen to God reveal his name to Moses and it sounds like he's speaking out of both sides of his mouth. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Yay, yay, yay. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Ah! So which is it going to be? Which is it going to be? Someone has observed that the whole of the Old Testament whipsaws us between the impulse of God to forgive, manifesting his mercy, and the necessity of God judging, manifesting his holiness and righteousness. That the whole of the Old Testament sets us up for the answer to the question, which one will it be? Will he be forgiving or will he by no means clear the guilty? Now, this passage gives us some more words for our vocabulary. And I got to blow through these. But there are four words here, four words that you you just have to have in your vocabulary if you're going to be conversant with Christianity, if you're going to be conversant with the Bible, if you're going to speak the language of heaven, you've got to have these words in your Bible, in in your vocabulary. And the first of them is redemption. Look at verse 24. And these are the words that answer the question, how do these two things get reconciled? God's propensity and inclination to be merciful, to forgive, and the necessity in God to be holy and righteous and so to judge. How do you resolve these things? These are the words that that help us understand how God has done it. And the first of them is redemption. Verse 24, justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption. Write it down. It's a gospel word. Redemption. What does it mean? Well, the basic meaning of the word, the root word, or the root meaning of the word is simply to effect a ransom by the paying of a price. To effect a ransom by the paying of a price. Did you all see Mel Gibson's movie, Ransom? I don't like to watch movies like that because they involve kids. 
It's, I don't like watching movies like that because they are about kids. Ransom. A child is kidnapped. This is what kidnappers do, right? They, they, they imprison someone. They put someone in a condition of bondage. And then what does the kidnapper do? The kidnapper who holds this one in this imprisoned condition, in this condition of bondage. Are these words resonating with you at all? A kind of about what sin does, you know? Sin, sin seduces. It just does. Sin whispers, come and taste life. Come and enjoy life. Sin seduces. It presents itself. Look, sin doesn't show up and say, I'm the devil of hell. Embrace me. I don't know. You know, it doesn't work that way. Sin is always pleasing to the eye, isn't it? It's always pleasing to the heart. It's always pleasing to the will. But it does. It imprisons. It puts people in bondage. It just does. That's good news. It's good news to know that. That's part of the good news. So what is a ransom? Well, a ransom is paid to the one who holds the captive hostage. It's, it's what goes on in slavery. Someone is kidnapped. It happened in the Greek world. It happened in the Roman world. After that, it's happened across the centuries of human history, whether prisoners of war or criminals or people who were just abducted and stolen away from their families and put in this condition of oppression, imprisonment, bondage. The only thing that gets them to a condition of freedom is the payment of a price. The payment of a price. That's redemption. It's the payment of a price to secure freedom for the one who is held in bondage. That's Mark 10, verse 45. If you don't know this verse, you got to have this one. You got to know this one. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, a payment for many. Same word in Mark 10, 45 that you find in Romans 3, 24. Ransom. Right? Kings, the kings of the world, what do kings want? What do people with power want? They want to be served, right? How do we measure success in the kingdoms of the world? We measure success in the kingdoms of the world by numbering the number of people and the different kinds of people who serve us. But it's not that way in the kingdom of heaven. The son of man, there are a lot of things that can be said about Jesus, who he is, what he does. But at the core of Jesus' mission, it is this thing, not to be served, not to have people waiting on him, but he comes into the world to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to pay, to pay the price for many. A life given for the enslaved, one enslaved so that those who are enslaved may be set free. That's redemption. That's redemption. Well, there's more. Redemption is a wonderful thing. It's a great thing, right? It's a great thing to be free, to be set free. 
John Murray points this out in his commentary. The biblical notion of redemption isn't just somebody being liberated or set free. I was on the treadmill this couple of weeks ago, and I happened to catch a few minutes of the Frost-Nixon conversation. You remember the Frost-Nixon conversation? And you remember what happened in Richard Nixon's administration, right? You remember the tragedy of the premature end of Richard Nixon's administration. Now, here's the thing about Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon experienced liberation, but he did not experience redemption. Because he was never declared innocent. He was never declared guilty. He was never declared innocent. He was pardoned, and he experienced the liberation because he was pardoned. And you know what happened in the pardon? It's one of the first acts of Gerald Ford's administration, the only non-elected chief executive we have ever known in the history of this country. His first, one of his first acts was to do what? Pardon Nixon. You saw it, those of you who were around, you heard it on the television, you saw it on Time Magazine, Newsweek newspapers, Ford pardons Nixon, right? Well, listen, Ford may pardon Nixon and Nixon may experience liberation because of a pardon, but God pardons no one. God pardons no one. And that takes us to the next couple of terms. Two terms, substitution and imputation. Substitution and imputation. We read something about imputation in the affirmation of faith. Imputes to them the obedience and judicial satisfaction earned by Christ. Imputes to them. What is that all about? Besides, I don't see it in the text anywhere, right? Well, the words are not there in the text, but the ideas are there in the text. And they are wrapped up in this little phrase, by his blood, by his blood, substitution and imputation. And here's what the apostle has in mind as he uses that phrase. It's one of those phrases that is just laced with meaning. It is pregnant with meaning. It is popping out with meaning. And these two words, substitution and imputation, are packed into that little phrase along with a whole lot of other things. And here's what you need to be thinking of because it's what Paul was thinking of as he used that phrase. You need to be thinking of the first 16 chapters of the book of Leviticus. Okay, I've given you a verse to memorize, Mark 10, 45. Now I'm giving you some scripture to read in the coming week. The first 16 chapters of Leviticus. What you see in the first 16 chapters of Leviticus is this recurring phenomenon. I... I, I, Are you you familiar with this? What you have in the first 16 chapters of Leviticus are these sacrifices being offered repeatedly, blood being shed repeatedly, okay? Blood being shed. And whose blood is being shed? And why is that blood being shed? Well, the blood is being shed. The sacrifices are being offered because as you read through those first 16 chapters, particularly the first nine and then chapter 16, 
the sacrifices are being offered because people have either sullied themselves and become unclean in one way or another, or they have overtly and explicitly violated some command of the law of God, some aspect of the righteousness of God, which is to say they've become unrighteous. They are sinners who have transgressed or by association with those who are unrighteous and unclean, they in turn have become unrighteous and unclean. And so these sacrifices are offered, and there are bulls, and there are goats, and there are doves, and and all of these different animals. But here's the thing that's so critical over and over and over again. As a bull is brought, as a goat is brought, as a dove is brought, hands are placed on the head of the bull or of the goat, or the dove is taken in the hands of the one who brings it. And it isn't until chapter 16 of Leviticus that we really get what is going on, that we really understand what is going on, because it is in Leviticus chapter 16, the day of atonement, the greatest day in the cycle of feasts and celebrations in the history of Israel, the day of atonement. It is on that day that the high priest in the presence of all of the people brings a goat, a living goat, into the midst of the assembly and places his hands on the head of the goat and before God and in the midst of the people confesses the sins of the people and the sins of the people are symbolically transferred from the people through the high priest to the goat. The goat is the substitute. And the sins of the people are imputed to the goat. They are transferred from the people to the goat. Goat's innocent. Goat's never done anything but be a goat. Right? The difference between goats and us is simply this. Goats have never tried to be God. And in one way or another, we're constantly dethroning God and inserting ourselves upon the throat, on the throne, committing rebellion against the God who is really there. The goat is innocent. The goat becomes the substitute. And the sins of the people are transferred to the goat. And this is what you read in Leviticus 16, 21 and 22. <laughs> Aaron shall present the live goat and shall lay both his hands on the head of the goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. He shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. And he shall release it in the wilderness. Now you fill in the blanks. What happens to the goat out in the wilderness? It dies. It dies. It's either ravaged by lions or it dies of thirst. But the point is, 
when the goat goes out into the wilderness, it takes with it all of the sins of the people. And when the goat dies, the sins die with it. The substitute who has had imputed to it all of the sins of the people. Did you hear the language? Transgressions, iniquities, sins. Three times the word all, every single one removed from the people of God and transferred to the goat who bears them out into the wilderness and is there consumed by the wilderness. What happened on the cross? What happened on the cross? Jesus, our redemption, Jesus gave his life as a ransom, as a payment, a life given for lives. And in the cross, he, the substitute, takes to himself all of my uncleanness, all of my unrighteousness, every evil thought, every wicked act, everything. I don't mean to offend you with this. But don't romanticize the cross. Jesus on the cross becomes the pornographer. Jesus on the cross becomes the rapist. Jesus, don't, don't romanticize the cross. Jesus becomes the one who commits all manner of vile and despicable acts violating the law of God, the polite sins of gossip and gluttony and covetousness and envy, all of those things that we're comfortable with, as well as the impolite sins, pornography, homosexuality, other sexual aberrations, murder, rape. He becomes all of that for his people. Don't romanticize the cross. Jesus does not die in order to persuade you of the goodness and rightness of being a good, upstanding, and moral human being. Jesus goes to the cross as your substitute, bearing from A to Z, bearing your sins. Every single. He is the high priest who takes your sin away from you and takes it to himself and bears it up into the wilderness between heaven and earth. There, number three, to be a propitiation for you through his shed blood. That's the fourth word. Redemption substitution and imputation, which is transfer. And there on the cross, Jesus, your substitutionary sacrifice, bears the full measure of the wrath of God. That's what propitiation is. Propitiation, the biblical word propitiation, means simply, although it's not simple. It means simply to satisfy the justice of God to satisfy the justice of God. That's what it is to propitiate. Folks, uh, Martin Luther was right to see Christ, to see a holy God as angry. 
God is angry at sin. His wrath is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness among men. God hates sin. He hates it for two reasons, for two reasons. First and foremost, he hates sin because it robs him of glory and he is supremely glorious. He is supremely glorious and he is worthy of praise. He is to be honored and adored and delighted in. And anything that detracts from him, anything that sullies his name, removes glory from him, is an inconceivable and immeasurable wickedness. And because he is supremely righteous and he knows what is right and cares about what is right, he cares about his own glory. And when he is robbed of his glory, it makes him angry. Not in the way that you and I are angry. We've talked about this. He's not capricious. He's not impulsive. He's not unreasonable. He is right to be angry when he is robbed of what is rightfully his, and that is glory. But he's angry for another reason. He's angry because sin robs you of gladness. And you are his image bearers. It robs him of glory. It robs you of gladness. And wherever he finds sin, he will visit his wrath. And that is what he does at the cross. Because all of my sin was taken away from me, given to Jesus. And the father pours out the full measure of his wrath upon the son. Matthew 27, 46, Jesus cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? You've probably heard it. I've heard it. Maybe I've mentioned it before. I've heard a lot of people say it was at that moment. It was at that moment that the father turned away from the son and abandoned him to death on the cross. And that, my dear friends, is not true. At that moment on the cross, the father abandoned the son of his love, turning from him in love and blessedness. And he turned upon him in wrath and judgment. That is what forsakenness is. That is what happened to the goat that was set free in the wilderness. The goat bearing sin experienced wrath and judgment. And Jesus faced the father who loved him bearing your sin, but facing the father in all of his fury and wrath as he punished sin. That's what happened at the cross. The justice of God is satisfied. So you ask the question. You go back to Exodus 34, 7 and 8. You go back to that passage and and you think of God's name, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And you ask, which will it be? Which will it be? And the answer is both. It will be both. Because at the cross, God manifests the extent of his mercy and kindness and grace and forgiveness by 
the exhibition of his wrath and judgment as he turns the full fury of it upon his son who dies bearing your sin as a substitute, redeeming you through the payment of an infinitely great price. And here's one last thing. And don't forget this either. It is God who did this. The text says that. Verse 25, God put forward Jesus Christ as a propitiation. I think I've shared this before. You remember the conversation between Mel Gibson and um, what's her name? It's escaping me. It's here. I've got it. The conversation between Mel Gibson and Diane Sawyer. Thank you. Diane Sawyer repeatedly asked Mel Gibson the question, who killed Jesus? Did the Jews kill Jesus? Three times she asked him, did the Jews kill Jesus? She was baiting him. She wanted him to say yes. Did the Jews kill Jesus? And finally, in frustration, Mel Gibson says to Diane Sawyer, don't you get it? Don't you get it? We killed Jesus. And a friend of mine made this wonderful observation that they were both wrong. That it was the father who killed the son to secure your redemption and salvation. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 1, to give you... Now, this is good news, folks. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you see that because of the cross, there can be peace between you and God, a peace that will never go away? Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, having received this finished work of Christ, there is now peace between you and God. If you're a Christian this morning, my prayer is that you and I, that we together will go away from this place, seeing this cross, understanding that this cross is empty, understanding the reason this cross is empty is because the price has been fully paid and the justice of God has been fully satisfied and there is no threat of condemnation for you. That's what brought joy to Martin Luther's heart. When he learned that, he said it was as if the doors of paradise swung open and the light of glory burst upon me. Peace is found in no other place, my friends, but the finished substitutionary work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And for those who know that work, you have peace. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, please encourage the hearts of your people and I pray for anyone who maybe hasn't ever come across, come across that threshold and stepped into this house, this house of peace and glory and freedom. I pray that you would penetrate that heart 
and open that heart to these things so that that heart may taste the sweetness of this peace. Lord Jesus Christ, press the reality of your finished work into our hearts and set our hearts more and more at liberty, we pray in your name. Amen. Please stand with me. We'll sing together number 524. The tune is familiar. The text is probably new to many of you, but it focuses on the finished work of Jesus. Thy works, not mine, O Christ. Number 524.